0: Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be speaking to thought leaders and practitioners in and around product management, hoping to use our combined experience to inspire you to be a better product manager, product leader, or just make better products. If that sounds like the sort of party you want to go to, why not bring your cheapest bottle of wine to OneNightInProduct.com, sign up to the mailing list, subscribe on your favourite podcast app, or follow the podcast on your chosen social media platform and guarantee that you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we talk about the different types of product disease that can afflict a product or an organization and some of the symptoms you might recognize. We also propose a cure, how stepping away from incremental development, setting a radical product vision, and aligning this with a business can help get you back on your feet. We also touch on the product Hippocratic Oath, the importance of doing no harm, and why you should be responsible for the change you're creating in the world. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So, my guest tonight is Radhika Dutt. is a product leader, multiple startup founder, advisor, board member, speaker, and now impending author with upcoming book Radical Product Thinking. Radhika's lived on four continents, speaks nine languages, and holds three passports, so she's starting to sound a bit more like a secret agent than a product leader. But she's now using her license to kill to shoot down mediocre product thinking and help companies create world changing products by thinking bigger and creating a radical product vision. Hi, Radhika, how are you tonight?
1: Great. Thank you
0: for having me. And I loved your intro. And that is my secret ambition to be a spy. I think it's everyone's secret ambition to be a spy. So first things first, radical product thinking. Now, normally when I speak to an author, I would ask them, like, how's it going? How's the reception been? How are the sales? But obviously, we can't ask any of that so far because the book's still on pre-order. So instead, I'll ask, how are the final couple of weeks before launch going? Are you still frantically scrabbling around dotting the i's and crossing the t's or are you just kind of waiting for it to go through the publisher's pipeline
1: i think there's there's a lot of uh, publicity and you know talking to media writing articles etc that i've been doing but aside from that i think more than anything it's just been overwhelmingly rewarding because a few people have started to have access to the book and the feedback that i've gotten that you know people often picked it up saying, you know, I actually thought it was going to be yet another product book, but really it turned out to be very different and truly radical. And that makes me happy that a lot of people reached out saying that they're applying this. And there are people who are outside the product community who see this as a new way of building businesses and a better way of building products that are world changing. And that really makes me very happy. So it's been a very rewarding process.
0: And I believe you've already been put onto some lists of books already, even before the books come out. So I guess the pre-release has helped with that. But have you been getting any actual specific feedback from some of the people that you have showed it to early?
1: Yes. A lot of the feedback has been about, you know, the fact that it really does bring this global perspective. One of the big reasons that I wrote this book was, you know, I found that most business books To be quite honest, they're written by tech bros for tech bros. (laughs) (laughs) And they're written in this way that's very Silicon Valley centric. Yep. And I wanted to provide a perspective that was truly more global. You know, there are examples of products around the world that truly have been world changing. You know, world changing products don't just have to come out of unicorns out of Silicon Valley. And so, this provided a perspective where we can show products that have changed the world for you know 45,000 women in India yeah. by making papadums, for example or you know an example of singapore which has been designed like a radical product because it's so incredibly vision driven and that came out of the example of having lived there for two and a half years so i think this kind of a global perspective really resonated with a lot of people who see their voices and ideas represented in their but also because it gave people a very step-by-step approach for, you know, how they can build products as opposed to being, sometimes you have big idea books that don't get to the practicalities. And I'm yeah. thrilled I managed to find the right balance between the two.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And something that comes up a lot is the exactly the syndrome that you just mentioned around a bunch of middle-aged white guys that have made it in tech, that have just written a bunch of books for other middle-aged white guys. So I do think it is interesting to have a fresh perspective. But are you currently sitting there refreshing your pre-orders page every few minutes just to see how many people are already ordering it? Or are you kind of taking it very relaxed and just waiting to to see it through?
1: I'm actually applying the whole radical product thinking process to the, the, the approach of writing the book and how I measure success. And it's made me much happier applying this approach. Let me explain what I mean. You know, in the radical product thinking way, I talk about how whatever we're doing, Our product is our mechanism for creating the change in the world. And so it has to start with what's the change that you wanted to bring to the world? And so in this case, right, with my book, there was a very clear change that I wanted to bring. I'm just tired of seeing us iterate. And whether we're entrepreneurs or large companies, what I often find is that we end up just trying things out to see what works. Yeah. Especially in entrepreneurship, it's like, well, let's iterate, try one strategy. If it doesn't work, we'll try something else. In larger companies, the iteration looks a little bit different. It's not so much the lean and agile iteration, but it's, you know, we have revenues that we need to show next quarter. Let's just make one small iteration on our software and put it out there and get the next incremental growth. And so these two forms of iteration is how we've really relied on building products. And I wanted to change that. And so that was my vision for giving people a vision-driven approach. For creating products that's not just relying on let's try what works, but rather based on being able to see what's the change we want to create, and then very systematically being able to translate that vision into reality. Right. And so given that that was my vision, in terms of building this product, which is this radical product thinking book, it was a strategy of writing a book that was, you know, addressing the pain points, both providing the inspiration, but also the details and how you actually do this, a methodical process. And then, you know, in terms of how I actually measure success, it's really based on the change that people are able to bring. So if people are able to build better products or rather if they're able to create change in the world by building better products and take responsibility for the change that they're bringing to the world, that makes me happy. And that's what I'm really looking for. And so I measure success by, you know, a lot of people who have shared their stories of how they're using this approach to create change. And so it's not been about looking at Amazon's pre-orders or sales. <laughs> and, you know, while that's all wonderful and nice to have, but like, I really have not looked at the numbers just so that I can focus on the true measure of success as I've defined it.
0: Yeah, I think that it's something that I've afflicted on as well, this whole idea that you don't have to have a, an audience of 100,000 or a million or whatever to, to actually make a difference. As long as you're making difference to some people, then you're making it to fewer people, but you're... You're still making a real difference and you can t- kind of tackle it one thing at a time. So, I do agree that the obsession with numbers is not always healthy, but at the same time, I definitely do refresh my podcast stats a little bit more than I should do. So, I guess there's still some learning for me to do there.
1: Well, I don't think it's easy, right? I think the whole world teaches us that success is a matter of numbers and having a high number of average users or high sales, et cetera. Yeah. And we can't completely get away from that either. In that, you know, if a book completely doesn't resonate with people, you you aren't going to be able to create change in the world either. If your podcast doesn't resonate, it's not going to create change. And so I think it's striking the right balance where we look at these metrics as a way of improving our product, but we don't judge the success of our product completely by just these metrics, that it's a more holistic approach. Harder to do just because of, I think, peer pressure. (laughs) But I think applying this approach has been helpful. For me to keep that focus on how do
0: I measure success. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But you've worked in and around product management, marketing, and obviously founded a few things yourself in your time as well. I think you've had a few exits as well, if I remember rightly. So you've got a long and distinguished career in and around this world. And you've said, obviously, that you didn't just want to write a book for product people, which is maybe something we can touch on in a minute. But was writing this book something that you'd always wanted to do as you? kind Of progress through your career, or was there some other inflection point, something that happened that made you think, No, I really need to get this stuff down and start spreading the word because something's wrong and I need to help fix that?
1: It was ju- definitely the latter of there was something that really needed to be fixed and which drove the idea of a book. I had never thought of myself as being one to write a book until maybe, you know, about 2017, where this all came up and where it started. What had happened was, you know, over my 20 year career, I kept seeing the same set of problems or this pattern of what I now call product diseases just coming up over and over. And, you know, I've worked in just so many different industries ranging from broadcast, media and entertainment, advertising, government, telecoms, even wine, right? And <laughs> whether in small companies or large, I found that it's these same product diseases that kept happening. And, I was talking to an ex-colleague of mine, Jordi Cadies and Nithya Agarwal and we were saying, you know, how they would come across these same sort of issues. And we said, well, why is it that it seems that there are just a few people who just seem to know what to go build or who seem to know how to do it? Uh, and then, you know, we lionize these people and say it's someone like a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk.
0: <laughs> but then,
1: you know, is it just this innate trait that someone has and the rest of us are going to have to suffer through product diseases, or is this something that we can actually learn systematically to get over and do differently? That was the quest that started it all. And so it started as a framework that we created, and we put it out for free. And so anyone could download and try this out. And so we started just seeing organic growth with people downloading this toolkit. And just increasingly, I started hearing from people saying, you know, I've tried to fill this out." can you show me a filled out version and give me tips on how to fill it out? (laughs) And that was how the need for the book arose.
0: You had too many people asking you to do their homework for them. So you decided to come out of a way to help them to do it themselves.
1: But I didn't mind either, right? I think it was in writing this book and trying to explain how we can do it better. I think it led to my being able to explain it much better as well. (laughs) And I think that was part of the rewarding experience of writing this book that I got to interview some really amazing people, which stretched my own thinking in product in that, you know, for a long time, like I thought about product as not a function, because my title wasn't product in early in my career. In fact, one of the most important experiences that I learned from in terms of building vision driven products was in a role where my title was program manager of custom engineering, which is about (laughs) as diametrically opposite as you can get from a product manager. And in that role, I was supposed to talk to our broadcast customers. This was at Avid, where, you know, Sony was the big player in broadcast. They dominated the industry. And we were just newcomers into the industry. And my role in custom engineering was to go talk to customers, figure out like what custom engineering they needed, and then build that. But the way we used that was to learn what they needed And partner with them so that they actually paid for some of this R and D because they bought into the vision, and then we used that approach to kind of grow our product suite. And in the span of about five years, we became the 800-pound gorilla in broadcast and ousted Sony. And this sort of vision-driven growth really came from having this title of doing custom engineering, and so product was never just a function. Product was always just a way of thinking and a philosophy so that we could grow our businesses in a way that was vision-driven.
0: Now, that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, very difficult to disagree with some of the points that you've raised around needing to have a vision and the fact that not all product people have product in their title. And I'd probably argue as a product person myself that you need to Have good product thinking, whatever you're doing, even in consultancy, right? Because you always want to focus back on the user, as you say. But we spoke about marketing as part of your career. And to double back on marketing, for this book, what is your elevator pitch? And who should buy it? And why should those people buy it?
1: I think I've written a vision statement somewhere that I could probably read out. But let's just (laughs) say, (laughs) let me start with every vision that I write. It starts with whose world am I trying to change? What is their problem? Why does it need changing? Because honestly, maybe it doesn't need changing at all. And then finally, how am I going to bring about this change? So when I think about my vision behind radical product thinking, like who, whose world am I trying to change? It's the people who have experienced product diseases and who have seen that product diseases are often fatal to innovation and that they want to build products better what is their problem? I think today, you know, a lot of the books and methodologies that are out there, examples are lean, agile, and all the business books focus on speed and how can we iterate faster? How can we innovate faster? The focus has always been on speed. And so the problem is that investing in speed is like investing in having a fast car. That's wonderful. It's good to have a fast car, but a fast car isn't really useful unless you know where you're going. And That part is what's missing. Our ability to set the destination and navigate to it hasn't kept up with our ability to drive fast. And so why is the status quo unacceptable? It's because when we do this, we go through product diseases, and it often kills products. And we're creating change in the world that often is unintended and not creating a better world that works for all. The world that I envision is one where anyone who wants to create change systematically has a very clear methodology for doing so. And that brings us to this book, which both presents the big ideas as well as a very practical set of tools that helps us both build products, but also bring our whole team with us on the journey. So that was the vision behind Radical Product Thinking.
0: It's funny, though, because you called us out in the book yourself as well, and you've mentioned it just now as well, the, the lean thing. And obviously, when we talk lean, we have to go back to the lean startup. I mean, that wasn't the first book, but it was kind of the one that really popularized a lot of the ideas and the idea that you build something small, you iterate, you learn, you build your business model as you go. And you're kind of pushing against that, or at least against some of that, which is a pretty bold move given the status of that book. But are you actually saying that the lean startup approach is wrong or just that it's incomplete?
1: I think it's just incomplete. I am a huge proponent of lean and agile. I think they're amazingly useful methodologies, but they're useful for execution. And what happens is we often tend to focus on execution alone because we think, well, you know, it's more satisfying. We're doing stuff, right? Like it feels like we're making progress. And therein lies the problem that execution is fast execution, right? can look like chaos because we're all moving in different directions and it's like arrows pointing in all different directions. And so what we need is not just speed, we need direction as well. So direction plus speed is what gives us velocity. So I think lean and agile give us speed and radical product thinking gives us direction. So you put those two together and that gives you forward velocity. So the ideal pairing is both radical product thinking and lean and agile.
0: We'll look for the two-for-one on Amazon and hope we can get that through. But proponents of Agile, proponents of Lean will say that it's not just about delivery and that it's actually about building a business in an iterative way as well. And your argument is that you need to plan up front, at least to some degree, to understand where you're going, to have a direction, as you say. So we talk about product visions a lot in product management. Obviously, it's something that any good product management book or product leadership book we'll talk about. How does your approach to setting a product vision differ and like how much upfront thinking is there and how do you go about it, I guess, is the question.
1: Yeah, I think the point that you brought up about the pushback that I often hear is exactly this, that people say, well, with lean and agile, of course you have to have a vision and you know execution is driven by that vision. Therein lies the problem. The vision that we've learned to have Right. What we've learned is a good vision It's typically something that's broad. We've learned that it has to be a hag or a big, hairy, audacious goal, <laughs> uh, something that is unchanging. And that's where conventional wisdom is wrong. A good vision doesn't have to be a hag. In fact, a good vision has to be something that's really detailed. And so we have to start answering those questions of who, what, why, when, and how. And this is where lean and agile proponents will push back and say, Well, but you know, you don't know your vision until you've started executing, you kind of discover your vision along the way. And that is a problem in itself. When you're discovering your vision along the way, this is where you encounter diseases like pivotitis, where you pivot from one thing to another. The reality is, whether you're a startup, or you're a well-funded, large organization that's putting out a product, you have two to three pivots in your belt, before you know you run out of money and momentum and so you have to use those two to three pivots really carefully and every time you just pivot unnecessarily you're using away these sil- you're just spending those silver bullets that you have and so this is why we need to have a really clear vision and feedback driven execution is important we need to ask customers along the way but if we think about driving again you know asking customers for directions You can do that only if you know where you're going. Asking customers for directions when you don't know where you're going is completely useless. So all of this has to come together based on at least starting with a vision. And so, you know, while Lean and Agile talk about having a vision, they still focus on this idea of a big vision. And what I want us to get to is this detailed vision, similar to what I said for Radical Product Thinking, where we talk about the who, what, why, when, and how. And in terms of how this helps teams, the reality is, you know, unless you've answered these really profound questions, you don't really know, you're not aligned as a team, you don't know kind of where the misalignments even lie. We haven't talked about those misalignments. And so without that, you know, we kind of operate like these arrows pointing in different directions. And so just having those detailed discussions and starting to fill out this fill in the blanks approach to a vision, at least gives you a starting point. So you may not know everything about the vision, but think of it like a stake in the ground. This is what I think is my vision at this point in time, and why I'm going to try this particular iteration. Once you try that iteration, you may discover, oh, you know what, I learned something about my vision. What I wrote in here about the why was actually inaccurate. And so you can go back and change your vision. And so the iterations and having a clear vision... Actually, it's a good feedback loop, and it keeps your team with you on the journey. What I've found with pivotitis is your team just starts to get demoralized, feeling like, oh, here we go again. We're changing direction one more time. Whereas (laughs) when you have a very clear vision and you go back, and even if you discover you have to change it, it doesn't demoralize your team because you're making a very thoughtful and deliberate decision that here's why we're changing our vision. Here's what we learned. So you're not necessarily spending the two to three silver bullets on losing momentum.
0: Yeah, there's a certain level of sunk cost syndrome when it comes to pivoting as well, because people are like, well, all that work that I've done, it's all completely useless now and start to get a bit cross. But at the same time, obviously, there are a number of well-known pivots out there. So I guess your argument, as you've just said, is that you don't want to do that too often and you want to have some kind of plan. Otherwise, you're just going all over the place, which I think is fair. And actually, one of the things that you can see in some companies is their vision is pretty much just whatever the last handful of clients that they spoke to said. And it changes all the time based on whatever's the most likely prospect that's coming up.
1: Exactly.
0: Which starts to feel not like product thinking at all. But at the same time, people might still say it is. In fact, I call that
1: disease obsessive sales disorder.
0: So, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the list of product diseases that you have in the book at the moment. So you've got hero syndrome, strategic swelling, obsessive sales disorder. You've got hypometrisaemia, locked-in syndrome, pivotitis, and narcissus complex. So you've obviously put a lot of thought into the naming there and really encapsulating that in a very vivid way with the kind of medical connotations as well. But what are some of the worst examples you've seen of product diseases? like maybe some that you've seen in your work or that you've seen when you've been talking to other people about product? And is it that a good product vision cures all of them?
1: I think the main point of these product diseases is yes, we need to start with a very clear vision, but often where product diseases creep in is when there's a disconnect somewhere between this chain that goes from your vision all the way to your everyday activities. And what I've found is Whenever that chain is broken, that's where product diseases happen, right? And so this approach helps you tie your vision to your strategy, to your decision-making, to how you measure success, and then finally being able to create a culture that incorporates these ideas. So, you know, you asked about examples from my own experience. There was one example of pivotitis where I was heading up marketing at a company where we were trying to be the next visa of the world. And that's a tough proposition because you have to acquire both merchants as well as consumers. And we realized that, you know what, it's really hard to do both. So then we became loyalty provider for merchants. But then we realized, you know, that's just a really crowded market. So after a couple of months, we pivoted from that. We became a credit solutions company for merchants. And so, you know, from one pivot to another in all this time, at the end, just I I wasn't sure what I was asking people to sign up for on the website anymore. And so that's one example of pivotitis where, you know, it makes you realize that if we had a clear vision, it makes it easier to really push through and pursue something for longer until you discover what exactly needs to change or Bring your team with you on the journey so that they know kind of why we're changing from one thing to another and what strategy will make this next thing work. Otherwise, it feels like you're just trying different ideas and seeing what sticks. So, that was pivotitis. Another example of one that I've experienced really early in my career, but I've seen this happen so often, is hero syndrome. So, hero syndrome is so common in VC funded companies. (laughs) In my company, Lobby 7, what gave us hero syndrome was we just raised funding and our VCs told us, you know, really, you guys have the money now, scale, 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 you have to go big or go home. And that's really the fundamental idea that kind of is propagated in the VC and startup ecosystem, go big or go home. Yeah. But this is really driven by the VC business model where They invest in so many different startups. And so they want you to go big or go home because the idea is, you know, one of those 10 startups needs to succeed. The rest, you know, can dwindle away. And in fact, it's better if they just either fail or succeed in a big way. I really don't like the middlers. Yeah, that's kind of the VC business model. And so in our case with Hero Syndrome, we conflated success of our product with raising money. And our focus was on just going big. And in fact, our vision at the time was revolutionizing wireless. And, you know, the result of that was we ended up building a wonderful technology. In fact, like this was back in 2000 and we built what is now the early version of Siri back then. But (laughs) it wasn't life changing as an acquisition for us. It wasn't a successful product because we were just too early to market. And part of that was because we were focusing on being big as opposed to solving a real problem that we are seeing in
0: the world. Yeah, and obviously, again, I've read the list of product diseases, and I recognize all of them, and I've seen all of them, either myself or from friends and colleagues that have seen them. Like There's a lot of really common, what we'd call maybe anti-patterns, or product anti-patterns that you see. Now, I don't like to use that word because everyone starts to switch off if they're not a product person at that point. But there's one elephant in the room, which is that, Product leaders can do all of the work to build a vision, build a strategy to support it, and then get overridden by a leadership team, by the sales team, because either there's that next big sales opportunity, like we just spoke about, or like there's always that one feature that they say is going to land the next deal. Now, some companies I'm assuming are just kind of so riddled with what we would call product diseases that you're never going to change that, right? Because you can't easily change the entire culture of a company. You can make incremental change to some degree. But you can't just, for example, make the CEO just think differently. But where there is hope, and where there are ways that you might be able to get that person to change their approach and maybe take some of the principles, for example, from your book into account. What are some of the ways that you've seen work to help to drive that change?
1: The problem that you brought up about having a good vision and strategy, but then the fact that it doesn't feature in decisions, because maybe leadership overrides it, That is exactly, you know, what I was referring to earlier, where this is where you get a break in the chain where you're going from vision all the way to everyday actions, where your everyday actions become disconnected from your vision and strategy. And so, you know, what you said about large companies or small, I really feel like there is hope for everyone in terms of (laughs) being able to create change systematically and adopt this approach, right? I think in just larger organizations, it takes more time. For example, you know, I work with the central bank of Singapore. And Singapore is incredibly vision-driven, but in any large organization, especially in a central bank, change is always hard, right? Because the whole point of government is that you create processes so that you can replicate things over and over. So in an organization where you're focused on being able to create replicable results, creating change and doing things differently is difficult. (laughs) But... Like it's it's incredible to me and been such a wonderful learning experience to see how they've very systematically gone about creating change and digital transformation. There's absolutely hope for everyone to take this sort of systematic approach and even through incremental change being able to adopt radical product thinking. So one of the key ways that I start to introduce this approach so that we can start to connect vision and strategy to everyday decisions is I use an X and a Y axis when we talk about decisions. So think about your y-axis as vision. This is where things are either good for the vision or not, and your x-axis is survival. So this is going to help you survive or not in the short term. And so things that are helping you with your vision and helping you survive, those are, of course, the ideal opportunities. Those are the things that are easy decisions. The harder decisions are ones where you may perhaps have to invest in the vision. This is where it's good for your vision, but it's not good for survival in the short term. So, you know, In a product, for example, if you're, let's say, having to refactor code for three months and you're not going to be able to put out new features, you're investing in the vision. And the opposite of investing in the vision is where you're taking on vision debt. This is helping you survive in the short term because, for example, it's a feature that a customer is demanding. Maybe it's just a custom feature that'll help you win a deal. That's helping you survive in the short term, but it's not good for your vision. So what you're really doing is taking on what I call vision debt. And so the more vision debt you take on, you start to encounter diseases like obsessive sales disorder, where you start to drift further and further away from your vision, but it's helping you survive. And so the point of using this two by two is that you start to use this to communicate with leadership teams and across the organization. As you talk about decisions, you talk about whether things are in the ideal quadrant, whether you're taking on vision debt. If you choose to take on vision debt, You talk about, well, how are we going to invest in the vision so that we don't keep drifting away from our vision? And so this sort of a conversation really helps everyone align because the reality is, right, we always have to make these trade-offs between the long-term and the short-term. The problem that happens in organizations is we often make this sort of a trade-off where the trade-offs are dictated by leadership or some people, but Not everyone can be in all rooms and all meetings at the same time. (laughs) And so a developer may be making a decision on whether they're going to build something for the short term or the longer term. A salesperson may be deciding whether to pursue a particular deal or not. All of those people, if they just have the same intuition that you do for what is the right trade-off between long and short term, then everyone's making decisions in a way that's aligned. That's how you translate your vision into your... Everyday decision making, um, and and so this tool is one of the five elements that helps you communicate this intuition to align the team and bring everyone with you on the journey.
0: Sounds good. I'll give it a go. I think I've got an offsite on Friday. I'll print a copy out and take it along. But you talk towards the end of the book about digital ethics and the product Hippocratic Oath. It's obviously important to you to make a positive impact on the world. You've touched on that a few times earlier on in this interview, and it's probably too big a topic to do justice now. You know, we'll probably do a different episode on that, a different day. But if you had to say like one thing that a product team or product leader could do, or a principle that they could live by, that would make their product more on the side of good, what would that be?
1: To me, the biggest thing is realizing that your product is creating change in the world, that it's deeply affecting people's lives. And I think, you know, when we're building products, a lot of the intellectual satisfaction that we get out of building the product makes us forget about the fact that we're actually affecting people's lives. And so, you know, we may build algorithms and it kind of separates us a little bit from the users because we don't think directly about what it's doing to users. Um, And I'll give you an example, you know, with OkCupid is a dating site that's been largely free of any controversy, (laughs) right? And yet. There are algorithms that work very much like Netflix, where you know you get movie recommendations based on what other people like, similar to what you like. Well, OkCupid okay, does something very similar, and it turns out that Black women receive fewer messages on this platform. Yep. Right, and to me, we're creating a world then where we're increasing inequality. We are replicating the same racial prejudices that exist in society into our products, and so. One of the key questions for us when we build products is, how are we affecting people through our product? What collateral damage are we creating to society through our product? And we have to answer this question very honestly to ourselves. You know, we've started to become aware of how every one of us, and especially larger companies, how we're all contributing to environmental pollution. I think we need to do the same thing in terms of thinking about this collateral damage to society as a form of pollution and I in the book I call this digital pollution because just as environmental pollution came out of the industrial boom digital era and the growth of growth in tech that's been really carefree has led to digital pollution that's had this collateral damage on society and I describe five ways that we create digital pollution And we need to really very openly look at our product and see if we're contributing to digital pollution in any of those five ways. And then talk about, well, how are we going to avoid contributing to pollution in that way? And that's what I mean by the Hippocratic Oath of Product, where we're taking responsibility for the change that we're creating. Once we think of ourselves as doctors in the world, right, where I see a problem in the world, I'm using my product to solve that problem. It sounds so much like doctors where a doctor sees that you're sick with something and I'm going to give you this medicine to solve that problem that you have. You know, and as a doctor, I don't say, well, whatever happens to you afterwards, that's your problem, right? Like you just cannot say that. And so as a product person or as a business leader, we have to take that exact same attitude where we can't just say, well, I see a problem. I'm going to solve it with my product. But you know what? What happens to you afterwards? That's just on you. That really is not an okay thing to say. You know, as a company, we often say, well, I will create this product, but it's up to the users to use this ethically. Well, that's (laughs) just a real cop out. Yeah. And so that's where I would say we have to think like doctors and take on the Hippocratic oath of product and think through such issues and think about what's the world that we're bringing about through our product.
0: Yeah, it just reminds me of the recent story from Facebook about how people that were looking at pictures of, I think, of black people were being asked if they wanted to see more pictures of primates or something like that, which is obviously a rehash in many ways of the story from a few years ago with Google and the fact that it was auto detecting black faces as gorillas as well. So part of it for me always seems to boil down to needing to have more diverse voices in the room in the first place, because I imagine that you don't need too many black people, women, uh, people from any marginalized group to be involved in product development for them to start picking things up that these white tech bros that we were talking about earlier wouldn't pick up. So it's tiresome in a way that we have to still have that conversation in general, not me and you, but like in general in the tech and product communities because it feels like that is such an obvious thing to solve. But obviously a lot of work to do to keep progressing that, sadly. Now the book's out imminently, may even be out by the time published this episode a couple of weeks ago from the date of recording have you got like a big promotional tour lined up or are you kind of taking it easy and just seeing what comes i
1: never take anything easy <laughs> <laughs> so yeah definitely have a tour lined up but it's all virtual right now so i guess in that way it does make it easier i have a book launch coming up that for our listeners please do follow on linkedin and i'll be sharing book launch plans as well as promotions, etc, where you can win a free copy of the book. So yeah, ping me on LinkedIn and follow me on either LinkedIn or Twitter.
0: Excellent. I'll make sure we link that into the show notes and hopefully once the book is out, people can come and connect and find out a bit more. That's been really interesting and fantastic to go through some of the things in your book. We could obviously have gone through a lot more, but you know, we want people to buy it as well. So hopefully this will be enough to whet their appetites a little bit. Hopefully we can stay in touch, but yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thanks so
1: much for having me on the show. This has been such a fun conversation.
0: As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app, and make sure you share it with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.